to begin with a confession this morning. I was baptized for the wrong reasons. Some of you may feel the same after some years of experience in church, but this is what I love about church is we make these decisions. We don't fully understand and we walk into greater understanding. It doesn't mean we we have to say those past experiences weren't legitimate, but we're always walking into greater forms of faithfulness to God. It's a journey, isn't it? And this morning, I want to talk about that journey by talking about a couple of passages that really made me the kind of person that wanted to be baptized. And they were, well, let me just welcome my kids this morning, because the kids in the crowd this morning, because these, these may be motivation for baptism. But I want to tell you that there's got to be a different motivation for a lifelong journey of faith. But this, these were the verses that got me uh, in, into making that decision initially. First is Revelation 21, verse 8. Revelation 21.8, I remember this vividly, this sermon, I think. But, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they'll be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. I remember some fear about that one. There's another one in 2 Peter chapter 3, just a couple of books back that I want to read to you. And, and I'd like for you to put your finger here, if you would, put a bookmark. We'll come back. To this passage and spend a little bit more time here. 2 Peter 3, uh, beginning in verse 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to be to, to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Now that is good fodder for a good sermon, right? You've heard these sermons before. I'm going to come back to that, but how many of you have heard sermons on, on passages like these? We've, we've harped on these quite a bit over the years. Now I got baptized because I didn't want to go to hell. And I wanted to take communion, if I'm honest. That was part of it as well. And I remember those moments growing up of, of, of thinking about what life would be, about what eternity might be like. Now, there are worse reasons to be baptized than the ones I was baptized for. For instance, there were some of you probably who at one point at a summer camp experience, you, you made that decision to be baptized, but it was more about the girl than it was about Jesus, right? Your thought was, well, if I could get in the baptistry, then, you know, uh, she'll know I'm, I'm, I'm reformed and I'm living the right way. Or maybe it was because of emotionally manipulative sermons that happened on the last night of camp. Did any of you go to this camp too, right? It was always leading up to this moment at the end, and then they were going to get the fire and the brimstone, and baptist, baptistry was going to be ready as cold as it could ever be. And it's not shame on you if you made that decision that moment. It's shame on those preachers and teachers. And I hope that we're raising our kids here. That's that's what I know about Wes and our student ministry and our children's ministry. We're, we're raising our kids to know the love of Jesus as much as we to help them see the judgment that's there as well. And this morning I want to talk about that judgment because judgment isn't all bad that we've made it out to be. There's some good that goes along with it. Now, now don't get me wrong. I did believe that Jesus was Lord. I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. I believed when I was 13 years old when I got baptized that he, he died on a cross, that he was raised from the dead. I, I believed everything I needed to believe. Uh, but it was more the motivation for my baptism that was the problem more than it was those factors and facts. And it was out of fear that I made these decisions. It was motivation that was my problem. 
By the way, my, my goal this morning is not to rebaptize the whole room because I know a lot of us could raise our hands to say, yeah, motivation's not been what it should be. This is what we do in faith. We, we grow in our life with God. And ju- every time you come to a new understanding, a more full understanding of God's grace, of what salvation is, of what eternal and full abundant life looks like, we don't get baptized again every time we walk through that or we'd be doing it every Sunday, hopefully, because we're always growing in our understanding of faith, of who God is, growing more in love with who he is. But here's what I found out along the way, is that fear is a powerful motivator to get people to make decisions. But fear is a terrible motivator in the process of making disciples. If you're after making decisions, then fear is the way to go. If you have to look anywhere to see what I'm talking about, just look at the election cycle coming up, right? If they could just use enough fear, then we'll we'll know how to vote, right? But if you want to make a lifelong disciple, this isn't the way to do it. It's got to be a bigger and better motivation than fear to get us to become Christians. And throughout Christian history, Christians have used a lot of ideas about eternal punishment in order to get people to do things. And sometimes it was out of an honest heart, but sometimes it was the church using this motivation just to get what humans wanted them to do. And, and, and the way we figure this out is along the way in the Reformation, they began to preach grace to the medieval church. And all of a sudden, it became a lot harder to get people to go to churches regularly. And there's this tension in our lives, isn't there, that the more we feel like fear is the reason we do things, we'll show up out of duty and continue to do that. But, but once grace enters into the picture, all of a sudden our commitments become a bit less. Uh, Dallas Willard writes about this topic, and I really appreciate his writing. This is what he has to say about the problem in the church today. Non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. It's not that much discussed moral failures, financial abuses, or amazing general similarities between Christians and non-Christians. These are only effects of the underlying problem. It is now understood to be a part of the good news that one does not have to be a life student of Jesus in order to be a Christian and receive the forgiveness of sins. This gives a precise meaning to cheap grace that would better be described as costly faithlessness. How do we get here? How do we get to this place where what we believe doesn't have all that much to do with how we behave and how we live out our lives? I want to pray this morning that God will open our hearts again to this journey of discipleship because I think there's something in this for all of us to learn and grow and be convicted by this morning. So let's begin with prayer this morning. God, I I thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ. And God, I I want to apologize this morning. I know others do in the room this morning. We want to confess, God, the ways that we have abused your grace. For the ways we've used grace as a means of just kind of staying the way we are, expecting that eternity will fix everything in the end. And God, this morning, I pray that you would move in us. You would move in this room, that you would convince us of your goodness and the goodness of your commands so that we might live a life that is better than the life that the world teaches us to live. God, I pray this morning you would push against the culture in ways you need to so that we might be reformed into people of the kingdom. This morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching as well so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We live in a world where tolerance is the chief virtue. Where what's true for you may be true for you and what's true for me may be true for me. We don't have these arbitrators of truth, it seems like, in our culture, these these, these, these boundaries that are clear about what is true and what is not. And, and when the chief virtue is tolerance, there becomes all kinds of problems. In fact, America, I think, has a favorite Bible verse. If you didn't know this, I want to point it out to you. It's in the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, which means if we're 
one of our favorite verses of the Sermon on the Mount. We better be careful we're not misunderstanding it, right? These are hard words of Jesus. But I think America, this would be our tagline if we were ever to have one. Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. You see, in a world where tolerance is the chief virtue, judgment is the chief vice. And you know this, because if you were to speak out at all about what your beliefs are, it's easy to get that torn down to stand up for something in this world. And even though my generation is probably the chief evangelist of this whole idea, uh, the reality is we're a pretty judgmental generation. Uh, we, we've judged apartheid, for instance, and found it wanting. We've, we've judged genocide and, and found it despicable. We've seen child abuse, and we've said this is not what's going to go on in God's world in the days to come. You see, there are some things that whether you're liberal or conservative, whether you're young or old, no matter where you find yourself, Christian or not, we have agreed upon norms in our culture about what is wrong that we still call judgments on, don't we? And that's an impulse that's as old as the prophets. God's people actually didn't used to see God's judgment as a, good, as a, as a bad thing. We saw it as a good thing. Now, we tend to have God's judgment, we, we tend to view that as very individualistic terms. Like in the ending, we all have this scene about what God's going to do and when, when he sets things right and maybe a judgment scene we're going to have with God one day. And we always view that as an individual thing. Me and God, am I, am I right with him or not? And that's certainly a part of the story. But God's judgment is a whole lot bigger than just his judgment about individuals. In fact, a big part of the judgment in the end is what he's going to do to reverse the curse that we find in Genesis 3. And actually what he's going to do is he's going to shine a light. And this, this image of light shows up throughout Scripture. And for some, light is a really good thing. But for others, light's about the worst thing you can imagine. It's the significant theme. The first thing God creates in Scripture is light, right? As the story goes on, Psalm 119, 105, this is the, what it says right there. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. If you've ever been out in a dark place at, late at night on a camping trip or whatever it might have been, you know how good a nightlight is, how important it is if, if you need to go somewhere. Light's actually a good thing. If, if you're in the dark and trying to find your way, light is a good thing. But light isn't always a good thing, is it? If you're engaged in some kind of illegal or immoral practice, light is not your friend because light also exposes, doesn't it? Light actually sends judgment on things. It, it opens up and, and nothing can be hidden when the light is shown. In fact, John talks about this in, in 1 John chapter 1. We've read this passage a few times together since I've been here. 1 John 1, it's a passage about light, about sin. And it's a real hopeful passage for those of us who are able to confess our sins. It says here, John, 1 John 1, 5, This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. You see, light can bring great comfort. For those of us who confess our sins in the Christian faith, this is a good thing. God promises to forgive those sins, bring it into the light, but sometimes our religious experience has taught us to do otherwise, hasn't it? 
to hide things. But true Christianity, true living with God means living in the light, being open with who you are, claiming your baggage and putting it forth and, and working through it in healthy ways. So it works out in different ways. Light can be a comfort, but it can, it can also confront, can't it? In other words, if you're a victim of injustice or abuse, the light is your friend. You desire for things to come into the light. You'd love in some way for people to see what you're walking through, but you have no way of being able to speak about or uh, in, in this situation. But if you're the perpetrator of injustice, light's not your friend. If, if you're the perpetrator of abuse, you want things to be held in secret. And the people of God understood this idea when they were in exile, living under enemy rule. When they were living under the rule of the Babylonians and the Assyrians, you hear the Psalms and the language over and over again says, God, how long are you going to allow this to go on? Bring your judgment. Call out these enemies. Don't let this to be hidden any longer. It's the truth of the people of exile. And central to the prophet's vision of human flourishing in God's renewed world was, was their announcement that a number of things are able to survive in this world that will not be able to survive in the world to come. And in God's new world, war and greed and injustice and violence and pride and, and division and exploitation and disgrace, these will no longer be allowed in God's new world. In other words, judgment is a good thing when you suffer at the hands of injustice and systems of oppression. The day of the Lord isn't something to worry about. It's something you look forward to because finally God will call the truth for what it is. He'll be able to call out injustice. He'll be able to call out the violence. He'll be able to call out the oppression. So judgment is really bad news when it comes against you, but judgment is really good news when you're the one who's justified and vindicated. It's the best news possible. One day God's going to say enough to anything that threatens the shalom, the peace, the harmony, the health that God intends for his world. And the pro pro prophets proclaim this over and over again. God's going to say no to injustice, and he's going to say never again to oppressors, oppressors who prey on the weak and the vulnerable. And it's important to remember this uh, next time you hear someone say, I just can't believe in a God of judgment. They're lying. Because if they've ever desired vindication, if they've ever desired for the truth to come out about the oppression or something they've had done wrong to them, they desire a God who comes and judges what is wrong with this world. Have you ever had this situation where something's been done wrong against you and you, it just doesn't seem to come out? You actually look like you're in the wrong and you just want for someone to shine a light on it. You want someone to speak the truth of it. Will someone please do something about what's been done wrong? We crave judgment. We long for it. We thirst for it. Bring it. Unleash it. What does Scripture say? May righteousness, may justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing Stream And the promise of the prophets is that one day God will act decisively to bring out the truth of situations that have tried to be hidden. On behalf of everyone who's ever been stepped on by the machine, God will speak. On behalf of the exploited, on behalf of the forgotten or the mistreated, God puts an end to it and God will say, enough. See, the people of God have always believed that judgment is a good thing. Judgment is good when you've been wronged, but... When you've been the one doing the wrong, it's not so good of a thing, is it? Judgment's actually a great fear to those who sit with sin on our hands. And we all, if we're honest, have things that we hope will never come out that we've been a part of. We all have things in our lives we hope will never be made clear, but we know that God knows all things. 
And, And this is why we fear the judgment of God. All of us have sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. You see, the judgment of God comforts, but it also confronts. And I would say the same thing about heaven this morning. Heaven is a great comfort, but heaven also confronts the thought of the afterlife. See, this series about the future matters. And why does it matter? Because what you believe about the future has a huge impact on how you live in the present. And I'm grateful to be a part of a church with a legacy where grace has been preached from this pulpit for a long time now. They're not new walls that I have to break down because that's been part of why you guys have found a place here is because you've desired a place to raise your family to know the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. But at times, our message of grace in all the churches that have preached grace has caused us to put all of our hope about transformation in the afterlife and not in the present moment. So we sit back and we wait for God to transform us, and that's why... uh, Dallas Willard's able to write these words that we read earlier, that non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. Now, I don't want us to go back to believing we have to perfect ourselves in order to somehow deserve the mercy and grace of God. That's not the move we go back to in this instance. But here's what I do want. I want my kids to be so sure and grateful of the love and mercy of God that they cannot imagine living any other way than the way that Jesus taught them to live. They actually see it as the best way of life possible. Not that they're trying to earn God's approval by doing the right thing. But they know that God loves them so much and wants the best for them. That the commands God has given them is actually the the way and the path for the most life, the most abundant life they can possibly live. Does anyone say amen to that? We want to be that church, don't we? And learning to live the way Jesus taught us is the best preparation, not just for this world, but for the world that's still to come. See, we assume that heaven will be the greatest place we can ever imagine. But sometimes I wonder what that first hour in heaven will be like. Have you ever had this thought before? Coming to -to face-to-face with those people that you may have not quite fixed things with and reconciliation is part of the kingdom. Does it just all change in a snap? Or one of the ways it might happen is this. I just imagine us getting to heaven and we first get there and the, the first sound we all kind of utter out of our mouths is, Oh... The noise of recognition, right? We've had all these questions. We've seen things unclearly. And we come face to face as if those questions don't matter anymore because everything's made clear in a way it never was before we made it to see God face to face. We'll see things clearly. So maybe that's it. Maybe it's the the noise of recognition. Maybe it's this sigh, oh, now now I understand the pain and suffering that I walk through in life. Now I see the people who are here that wouldn't be here if it weren't for that difficult time in my life that now I minister to others out of the blessing. But maybe there's another possible response. Another possible response isn't the noise of recognition, it's surprise. I wonder how surprised we'll be when we get to heaven, when we get to the new heavens and the new earth that God creates. I think of the parable in Matthew chapter 25 where, where Jesus tells this parable about sheep and goats. You remember this story? And, and, and the, the parable's full of surprise because there's the sheep on his right and he says, come with me into my kingdom, the king says. And, and they say, they're shocked, they're surprised. What, what did we do to, he says, well, when you fed those, when we, they say, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you something to drink? He says, whenever you did one of these things for the least of these, you, you did it to me. And they're surprised. They had no idea they were doing it for Jesus. But there's surprise on the other side too. Because the goats that get cast into eternal fire on his left, they, they say, when did we ever see you hungry and fail to feed you? When did we 
see you in prison or, or hear you in prison and not visit you? When were you naked and we failed to clothe you? He says, whenever you didn't do for the least of these, you, you didn't do for me. So, so maybe it's recognition or maybe it's surprise of the people who happened to be here we never imagined would have gotten in, right? But maybe there's a third option. Allow me to paint a, a different picture for you of what that first hour in heaven may look like. See, for some reason, I, I always assume that in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And, and 1 Corinthians 15 points to something like that. But it doesn't say all of us will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. What it says is our bodies will be transformed, changed in an instant. But my question this morning is, will our transformation of who we are as people happen just as quickly? After all, we've been practicing certain ways of life now that if life on earth is any indication, it takes a long time for the journey of transformation to happen. And if you become fluent in a certain way of doing life, if you've nursed certain hatreds or have certain prejudices, I wonder how long it might take for those ways of thinking to change. How many of you have ever been to another country where they speak another language? Many of you probably had that experience, right? I remember having this experience when we went to Honduras on a mission trip one time, and we went down to build uh, houses, help this church out, and, and uh, I remember coming in contact with these kids and wanting so desperately to be able to communicate with them, and we were able to some, say some things that words didn't have to say, but I, I just wish I'd known the language to be able to communicate better. But some of you have had those experiences where you've been in another country and you haven't been able to speak the language. It's so frustrating, right? You order something, and it's something far different than what you thought you were ordering. You can't seem to communicate. There's this barrier that's there. How comfortable is it to be somewhere where you can't speak the language? So go with this analogy for a moment. See, many of us are speaking a language that won't be used in heaven. (laughs) And I'm not talking about just the bad words we may speak. I'm talking about the lifestyle we've built up. How, How do I say what I'm trying to say? Imagine with me a racist entering into heaven for the first hour. All of his life, he's nurtured hatred for certain groups of people who look different from him. And and the way I've been taught is that a racist can go to heaven if he takes on the mercy of God and, and, and comes to know Jesus Christ and is transformed in some way. But if that racist never learns to drop his racist attitudes and learn the way of love, then how comfortable is heaven going to be when he has to sit down at the table with people of all kinds of tribes and languages and tongues? He has to sit next to them. For some people, the flames of heaven may be hotter than the flames of hell. Some say the flames of hell are hot. I've been preached those sermons all my life. But for a racist, I wonder if the flames of heaven right in front of God's presence when he's been nursing another way might just be the most uncomfortable thing that person could ever imagine. Are you with me? And maybe for you, racism isn't a sin that you confess near as easily, but, but many of us would admit to sins of pride and lust and, and anger. And Jesus makes no promise that in a blink of an eye, we suddenly become different people with different tastes and different attitudes and different perspective. Paul, in fact, makes it very clear that we will have our true selves revealed, and once the sins and habits of bigotry and pride and petty jealousies are prohibited and removed from us, for some of us, there may not be that much left. Because this is the life we've been practicing and nurturing. I mean, how many of us could actually stand to be in the unmitigated presence of God right now with who we are and the kind of life we've developed? I'm not sure how comfortable that would be for me. 
And I think that's what Peter's trying to get at back in that passage we read earlier. If you go with me again to 2 Peter chapter 3, this is one of those passages that always comes up when we talk about, about what's happening at the end. And I want to look at this again from this perspective. This is 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 10. Let me read again. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I've heard this passage preached before and it was talking about how the world was going to get destroyed in the end and we'd go float in the clouds someplace. But for Peter, the day of the Lord doesn't mean that the world will be destroyed. It means the way the world is will be destroyed. And our works will be exposed for what they are. That's what Peter's saying. So what kind of people ought we to be as a result of this world on its way? In fact, in verse 13, Peter mentions the new heaven and the new earth. It's not going to be destroyed at all. And that's what's interesting about this. In verse 10, it says that fire can reveal and can lay things bare. And if you pay attention to what Paul says back in 1 Corinthians, he has more to say about what fire does and what it will do. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 and following. This is what it says. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. You see, fire reveals the quality of a substance, doesn't it? And if you're building your life with wood or hay or straw, with things that are meaningless in the end, it'll get revealed in the end. But if you're building your life with gold and silver, with with precious metals and stones, it'll last and be refined through the fire. You see, fire can destroy, but fire can also purify. It can test. It can refine. And here's the deal. I mean, what you believe about the future shapes and forms and determines how you live now. But I'm beginning to wonder if how we live today will determine how easy of a transition it will be into the unrestrained glory of God in eternity. I mean, we can play a good church game now. We can put on the mask and and we can build things with hay and straw and And it'll turn to rubble. But if you build your life, if we as a community build our life on God's future, on His kingdom, well, that'll last forever. In fact, we'll learn to be fluent in the language of the new heavens and the new earth, which of course is the language of love. I like the way Dallas Willard talks about this again. I want to read this quote to you. It says, I'm thoroughly convinced that God will let everyone into heaven who can stand it. But standing it may be a bit more difficult than those who took their view of heaven from popular movies may think. I often wonder how happy and useful some of the fearful, bitter, lust-ridden, hate-filled Christians I have seen involved in church or family or political battles would be if they were forced to live forever in the unrestrained fullness of God. The fires in heaven may be hotter than those in the other place. 
Jesus is getting at this. He's saying, this is the way the world is going to one day be. One day, there will be no place for hatred. One day, there will be no place for racism. One day, you won't be able to hold on greedily to everything you have. One day, we'll live in the unrestrained generosity of the kingdom of God in its fullness. And so what do we do now? We practice for the kind of life we'll have then. And what if we could be a community of people that decided from here on out, we're not living for the present moment. We're not going to build with hay or straw. Instead, we're going to build with precious metals. We're going to build a life that's built on God's future. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount, it looks bizarre. People say it can't be done. No, no candidate would ever go with the campaign program that Jesus pronounces. But in the kingdom of God, it all lasts into eternity. What we do now matters and can last. And the thing about this is great is we don't have to coerce people or use fear to bring them into the kingdom. No, we live this future life and it looks bizarre, but in some way it fascinates them to say, if that really is where life is, I want to find out what this is all about. Instead of coercion, it's fascination that brings people to find the good news. What do we do, church? We practice the future. We put it on display. We, We learn it in our homes and teach our kids that we don't dabble in the ways of, of wood and straw. No, no, no. We, we build our lives on the foundation that's Jesus Christ. We, we pour into things that matter. One day you'll live in God's future, and in that world there will be no more death, which means as families and churches, we don't sow death, we sow life, don't we? We support life in every place we can. We support the abundant life to give people fully what it means to have their full humanity back. We put life on display and not death. There will be no more sickness in heaven, which means we display healthy attitudes and relationships when it comes to our family of God together, when it comes to our family systems. No, we sow health and not sickness. There will be no more injustice, and so anywhere that injustice stands, we actually push against that, and we speak against it, and we live righteous and just lives in every way we possibly can, because these are the things that last through the fire. We no longer sow lust because in the, in, the, in the kingdom to come, there will be no lust. We don't treat people as objects. We treat them as people that are fully made in the image of God. And in the end, there will be no more violence, which means we don't learn the ways of violence. We don't use coercion to do anything in this world. No, no, no. We, we live as lambs among wolves. And that comes sometimes at a cost to us, but it's the way we learn to live because this is God's future in the present. And people will call us foolish for it. Remember what Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who are building their lives with wood and straw. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the good news, church. And my hope is that more and more we practice this way of life together. It will fascinate the world, but it will also help us to be fluent so that when the new heavens and the new earth arise, we already know the language before we get there. We don't have to give up so much of our lives as burned up as straw. No, no, no. We we build our life on gold and silver. And the law of God is something that we have put down. But i got to tell you, those Ten Commandments, they were given to us for a reason. Moses received these laws, and, and for years we've been denying that those are important. We've been walking away from those laws. But I'm telling you, uh, murder is not a part of God's future. Stealing is not a part of God's future. The other gods that we put in place of God, they don't lead to life. Those commandments are actually what lead to life. And for so long we've been saying, God, I guess, I guess you have commandments so that we don't get to experience a, a good life. 
And how many of us have walked through enough life to know every time we walked outside the boundaries of what God has provided to us, it always ended up in pain and turmoil and hardship, and we always had to find our way back to the past. This is why the commands are so good. The the law brings life, actually, if we see it in the way it's intended. We don't follow the law so that God is pleased with us and offers us salvation. No, no, no. We receive the law and we follow it because it's the best way of life possible. And it's the future that we're putting on display in the present. I know this may sound different to a lot of you because for years we've been pushing the flames of of hell. But my question this morning is, how hot are the flames of heaven going to be to you? And how do we make sure that when we walk into that new life that God has, we've lived into the abundant life now so that it just is the way we walk. It's just the natural rhythm of our lives. that We get to usher other people into the same way of life. This is what we want our kids to see. We want them to see God's commands as not things that take them away from life, but lead them to life. And we seek to live that out in our families and in our church. I, I don't know what would happen in our city, in our county, in our country. If the people of God just learn to trust God's law, just learn to live it out and learn the language of the future rather than dabbling in what gets burned up because of the present. What do you think, church? Is it worth a shot? Is it worth a try? This is what I want to stake my life on. I believe you do too. Let's pray as we close our time. God, I thank you so much for the commands you've given us in Scripture. God, I apologize for the times that I've, I've walked away from them. I thought they were trying to keep me away from life. It's like I've repeated the Genesis 3 story over and over again in my life. God, the evil one wants to try to point us to life in other places than where you have, but we're learning and coming to trust through our weaknesses and our failures and through our successes to find life where you said it is. God, we want the abundant life. We want a rich and satisfying life that begins now and continues through eternity. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his way of life. We thank you for his death and his resurrection. God, we need all of that. We need our life to look more like His. And so God, through Your Holy Spirit this morning, would You point us toward that life? Would You allow us to to enjoy and to, to love Your Word, God? Would You allow us to be drawn towards the things that matter most? God, we want that to be our legacy. And God, our desire is that our neighbors will see this odd, strange way of life and they would be fascinated to try it out and find life in Your name. So God, help us to live this out, but help us to be open to others that we'll ask questions as a result of the odd, strange behavior we put forth as Christians. Christians have been persecuted for years, and we want it to be because of righteousness, not for any other reason. So God, this morning I, I pray for those who are persecuted around the world. Pray you'd sustain them, you'd sustain us, God, to, to live out your way no matter what comes our way. God, we, uh, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. And everyone who agreed said, Amen.